Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Thank you for your support, and enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard. I am pumped to be here in Montreal uh, for the festival. I'm doing the shows remotely from here, and uh, it's insane. This is a tremendous festival, and uh, people, I tell you, you know, this this Industry Standard thing, it's 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 really crazy when you when you just start something and you just think it's just going to be this you know, a little thing that you're going to do and it's your hope that a few people listen and, and you walk through these parties that they have here and people, it's so incredibly, it's almost embarrassing and, 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 and humbling because I, I see people who come up to me and who say, Hey, you know, when I was 23, uh, you read my script and gave me notes and now I'm the vice president of this place. And, and when I was an assistant here, you took me aside after your meeting and you said this, or I listened to this thing on the podcast with Doug Herzog or Eric Tannenbaum or Patty Jenkins. I learned that, you know, you can write a script from nothing and be nominated for an Academy Award and and all the advice. And somebody just emailed me about the uh, best of show in 2013 where I, I, I had all the advice of all the people I had just like two minutes of each one and they listened to it before they went on a job interview and and got the uh, gig and, and there's just so many different things that, that make you realize that uh, that these things make a difference and 
And as I sit across from uh, my guest, uh, Nikki Weinstock, I think to myself, the few times that I have met him in meetings, uh, he made an impact on me. And he made an impact on me because he was kind, he was loving, he was caring, and he made you feel comfortable in the room, even though it could have been his... 70th pitch that week and early on in my career and I always thought to myself when I were in these meetings if only as a young manager or a young person in the business I could have been privy to seeing how people like Nikki Weinstock are in these meetings if only I could see what they say or know how that could have helped me in the future but I never had that tool. And I felt if I could bottle up the 10 or 15 minutes of gold that somebody like you gave to me in these meetings and expanded into like 60 or 90 minutes, that it would be invaluable. And, and I, I'm glad that it has been. But anyway, I, I digress there because I normally I start off with a cold open that has a six degrees of separation to mm -hmm. my guest who at one point in time, which we'll talk about, worked uh, with Peter Chernin, who was the, the chairman of Fox Broadcasting Company. And um, about uh, 15 to 20 years ago, I was re representing Dave Chappelle, and one of his things that he was excited about the possibility of happening in his life was if he could ever become a cast member on In Living Color. It really meant a lot to him, and uh, it wasn't necessarily like the kind of goal for him like that was... You know, like you hear people from when they're seven years old, I just want to be on SNL. But... At the time, the show was like one of the greatest shows you could ever imagine on television. And as an artist and a young manager, you don't know anything about the politics of what's happening within the walls of Fox broadcasting systems and, and the network with a talent and a creator. All you know is you turn your television on on Sunday night and you see gold. That's all you know. And you're like, I, I, I got to be a part of that. So Dave had let me know that could I help him be in a situation where I could get him the opportunity, crack the door open for him to get in living color. And so I worked hard to arrange something with Keenan Ivory Wayans to have him see Dave uh, in New York. And I was working on it and working on it really hard to make it happen. And at the time, we had had a meeting on the books with Peter Chernin for about a month or so in the future to talk about developing a show for Chappelle. And so I uh, worked on it, worked on it, finally heard from Keenan saying, listen, I'll come see him at the comic strip on this date. That's the only thing I can do lock in or I can't do it. And I looked on the schedule and Dave was somewhere across the country 
And I called Dave. I said, listen, what do you want to do? He said, Barry, I'll, I'll, I'll come. I'll come back from L.A., back to New York to uh, the comic strip. Made all the arrangements for Dave. Got him back. Confirmed with Keenan in his office. Dave gets to the comic strip. He's got a spot. I went with Lucian, the late Lucian Hold, who managed and ran the comic strip, helped me out get a great spot. Got people there, so it would be crowded. Great crowd, Dave's crowd. And time is going by, and Keenan isn't there. Now, back then, there's no email that you can use. You have a phone, but it's late at night. There's nobody answering the phone. So time came for Dave's spot, and uh, Keenan wasn't there. We waited another spot. Keenan wasn't there. All through the show, the end of the show, Keenan wasn't there, and finally Dave just went on and did a set, and we left. And uh, never got a straight answer as to why Keenan wasn't there or what happened. And so when we got to our meeting with Peter Churden, it's my first time ever sitting down with him. And if any know Peter Churden or have ever been around him, Peter Churnin is like a, he's almost, you almost feel like he's a throwback to the old executive merged with the new cutting edge executive. He's a leader of men and women. He's a guy who, when he walks down the hallway, you know he's walking down the hallway. And similarly to somebody like Lauren Michaels, I'm not going to say I ever felt any anxiety around anybody, but you really felt like, you know, you're in, you're in the company of somebody who's a heavily evolved man. Mm-hmm. And you just looked at him and he, you know, even if he might have been dressed casually, he was almost presidential. He was the president. So we were looking forward to this meeting to talk about developing a television show. And he sat down and he was very gracious. And the first thing he said to Dave and I was, how you doing? What's what's new in your life? What's happened recently that you want to tell me about? And with a smile on my face... Uh, and Dave right next to me, I said, well, you know, actually, coincidentally, we uh, were just in New York at the comic strip and uh, we arranged an audition for In Living Color with Keenan Ivory Wayans and um, he didn't show up. And something happened that was very unexpected that I would think from somebody I was meeting for the first time. His face became red. His neck became almost, you know, when you see somebody's neck who's building up tension. And the next words out of his mouth were, fuck Keenan Wayans. (laughs) Fuck Keenan Wayans. Fuck Keenan Wayans. Those were the, the next three sentences that I heard from the man after the first sentence. Three out of the first four sentences I hear from Peter Chernin in my first meeting is, fuck Keenan Wayans. And Dave, I mean, you know, the way he was, he was just so affable. He was just laughing 
hysterically and and I was just he wasn't laughing like laughing like you'd be insulted by it he was just like laughing like uncomfortably laughing and I was like well you know it's it's no big deal if we if it happens it happens and he went on to talk about how difficult it was to work with somebody who was brilliant and who had a tremendous vision, but that worked in a way that wasn't conducive to the way he worked and how challenging it was being the head of a network, knowing that you have a, a show that's a juggernaut but you have a guy who works completely differently than you work and you have to figure out how to navigate and do it. And what was interesting to me is that in that moment, he let his guard down, mm -hmm. which is something I'm pretty sure that he didn't do that often to people outside the circle. I'm sure inside the circle it wasn't uncommon for him to say, fuck Keenan Wayans. Right. But outside the circle. And when I left the meeting, I said to Dave, that's a great meeting. We're going to do a show here. He's going to want to develop something for you here. And Dave was like, I, I don't know how you could possibly see that. He seemed kind of upset or angry or whatever. And I said, Dave... What happened in there was the greatest gift you could ever have. And he said, I don't understand. I said, here is a guy who's the president of the network. And you and I made him feel comfortable enough in the first few minutes that we were there to let him feel like he could share that with us without us going all over town and saying, this guy said this about Keenan Wayans. And at the end of the meeting, he really felt comfortable. And he knew that even though you saw him in an unfavorable light right there, that you knew what he was about and he understood you. And that kind of thing that you can have with people in the business will always help you get to the next level. And in the end... We got our development deal to do something. It didn't turn out exactly the way we wanted it to, which is another story. But I think the lesson here is that the person I'm sitting across from has navigated with all kinds of executives, some that are volatile, <laughs> some that are not so volatile. And through his persona and personality, which is so kind and so generous and so calm, he's figured out a way to navigate and win at every level of the game. And so my advice to you who are listening today is that if you can figure out a way to navigate through every situation and keep your cool and do great work, you will rise to the top of your profession. Here we go in three, two. We ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communicating. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. Infections caused by jacuzzi water. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. Okay, here we go. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Out of the air!
people on Twitter have been asking for Barry Katz to come back a lot. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in showbiz and you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. Here we go. You fucking firing me up, Katz. Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Undeniable. Creating holy shit moments. I love this man. Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business, I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to BarryCats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. You know, before I get started, I want to take a minute to let you know that I receive a lot of correspondence from companies wanting to sponsor the show, and I just... I've just avoided it since we started. You know, I always thought that it was kind of weird, and I thought that maybe people would think a certain way if I I did that. And there was this one guy who kept reaching out to me, kept reaching out to me over and over again, persistent. His name was Michael Purcell. And finally, he traveled to L.A., and he said, you know, i got to meet you. So I met the guy, and... Uh, I sat down and he told me that 10 years ago he created a company called Global Cash Card where he figured out a way to take payroll, make it paperless for companies of any size, and then allow somebody's weekly salary to be instantly like loaded anytime, anywhere onto their own personal Visa payroll card for free. So I was a little bit intrigued, so I went online and I did some research and I found out that it cost around $3 for every paycheck to be cut by a company. So that means if you're like a you know medium-large company, whatever, and you have a 1,000 checks you're writing every week, uh, do the math. It was like $12,000 a month you could save or $135K a year on this global cash card. So I called the guy back and I said, well, this is something that everybody can benefit from. So I decided to sponsor him and his company. So do yourself a favor. Go to globalcashcard.com. Schedule a live demo on their system. Speak to Michael Purcell. See how easy it is for your company to start saving big money today. And trust me, you'll be glad you did. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard. Thank you so much for all your emails and your responses and reaching out to me. Uh, you guys are amazing. But anyway... Uh, Nikki Weinstock. Can I call you Nikki? Please. And not Nicholas Weinstock? Yeah, not Nicholas. All right. Unless you're mad. 
This is uh, pretty, pretty interesting stuff, so you're going to like this. Nikki Weinstock is the president of Invention Studios, a film and TV production company currently developing more than a dozen movies at 20th Century Fox, New Regency, Lionsgate, and CBS Films. A dozen. Uh, find out how many films are released from each studio in a year. Add them up. And divide them by a dozen, and you'll realize how many films this guy is involved in. He's also the creative head of Lionsgate and Debmar Mercury's 1090 television division, overseeing a slate of multi-camera comedies that bypass the traditional development in favor of immediate syndication. The 1090 thing we'll get into, so don't panic. I'll explain that in a second. Nikki began his career in 1993, believe it or not, as a book editor at a random house in New York City before becoming a full-time writer. He's the author of a nonfiction book, The Secret Love of Sons, two novels, As Long As She Needs Me, and The Golden Hour. And he's uh, written many articles and essays for the New York Times Magazine, National Public Radio, the Nation, Vogue, and many other national publications. In 2000, he went off to work as vice president of corporate communications at News Corporation, otherwise known as News Corp, serving as the chief speechwriter for the global media company's chairman, Rupert Murdoch, as well as his president, Peter Chernin. In 2004, he moved to L.A. and served as vice president of 20th uh, Century Fox Television Development, where he helped to put a range of successful TV shows on the air, which we'll talk about. In 2007, he partnered with writer-director Judd Apatow to run Apatow Productions, overseeing such movies as Forgetting Sarah Marshall, Pineapple Express, Step Brothers, Get Him to the Greek, and Bridesmaids. All bombs. <laughs> <laughs> you can find them on cable somewhere. <laughs> In 2009, he joined Peter Chernin to launch Chernin Entertainment and help oversee the company's comedy development in both features and television. And in 2011, he founded his own company, which we mentioned before, Invention Films, which is now based at Lionsgate. He also serves as board of the Jackie Robinson Foundation and on the executive council of the Authors Guild. Believe it or not, he continues to write novels, contributes essays to the Huffington Post and other publications. And in his spare time, whenever that is, he teaches creative writing to fifth graders at public schools in the Compton and Crenshaw neighborhoods of Los Angeles. I am so excited and so honored. Please welcome my guest today, Nikki Weinstock. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. All right. I'm so happy you're here. Um, what I like to do uh, is start at the beginning. So I like to start like before any vision of entertainment ever came into your mind, just trying to figure out where it is you are, where is your family, where do you live, and what's the first vision of uh, your thought of being in the entertainment business? So starting at the beginning, yeah, it wouldn't entertainment per se wouldn't have wouldn't have entered the picture for me. I I I think I came from a probably outdated model of entertainment, even though 
fiction and characters and things were were always in my life. I grew up in New York City on the Upper West Side of Manhattan in a very, I would say, sort of Woody Allen existence. Uh, my mom was on the staff of the New Yorker magazine for 22 years or something like that. Uh, a good Midwestern gal who moved from Ohio and worked her way up from the typing pool to be a fiction editor. Uh, and my dad had been a, a play producer and uh, and sort of bounced around for a while and ended up uh, starting a consulting firm and doing business writing. But the New Yorker crowd was was my parents' crowd, and so all their friends and the first people I remember coming to our apartment and having dinner parties were cartoonists and playwrights and out-of-work directors. And, um, now, you know. for, now, for our audience that doesn't know what kind of audience the New Yorker caters to, Maybe you could share that for sure. us. Sure. You know, I th it's changed. I think of it as pretty cerebral and upscale, and maybe to some extent it's always been. Um, but in those days, it, like a lot of New York in general, it was sort of scrappier and funkier and tended to be, you know, the only place that would write about, you know, off-Broadway theater and uh, weird. They have a section called Talk of the Town that would follow strange, you know, uh, artists and, and city characters and stuff. It was an eclectic, an eclectic bunch. The writers were an eclectic bunch. Uh, the cartoonists were a more eclectic bunch. Um, so, uh, it was a fun way to grow up. I definitely rebelled against it, uh, like most healthy citizens, but, uh, have definitely come out of the place where I feel lucky to more than anything else, the idea of writing, which I've always wanted to be involved with in some level. I mean, I view what I do now as just being in writing to, to whatever extent I can. Um, I feel lucky that the idea of doing something like that for a living was never weird for me. That was sort of that that was an option on the table beginning when I was born. And most friends I have in entertainment whether they're playwrights or, you know, stand-ups or directors, um, almost all of them had a point where they had to defend the very idea of doing something creative, whether they had an overbearing dad or a, you know, hometown that didn't get it. Um, I was lucky. That felt like a rational choice from the beginning. Um, so, uh, so that was fun. I wouldn't have called it entertainment. I did, I was late to the game in terms of a Hollywood version of entertainment. I remember even in college, people were writing Simpsons specs and stuff, and I had no idea what they were doing, sending things off to Hollywood. Um, that was, I hadn't expected to move to Los Angeles. My family was such a hardcore New Yorker crowd. That, and and uh, where did you go to college? I went to Harvard. So there was a you know, there's a real Harvard mafia. There's a lampoon thing going on. Now, did you go to public school in New York? I went to I went to a school called Bank Street School that was a very progressive, funky, hippie, artsy place. Um, uh, that was a private school. Um, my memories were all of you know a good uh, teacher playing you know Puff the Magic Dragon on guitar and that sort of place. And was that public or private? That was private. That was private. I, I, I ask you this, and I, I don't know the answer, and maybe you don't know the answer. Um, 
obviously uh, there's very few people in the world that wouldn't say Harvard is the greatest school in the world, except for those people who go to Yale. Sure. Um, but the fact is, is do you feel like if you'd have gone to a public school, your mindset still as an academic person would still have gotten you to Harvard? Or do you think the private school was the thing that got you there? That's an interesting question. I, I I'm, ended I'm up good for one a year. Yeah, that's good. You <laughs> logged it. Um, that was that was my early school. I then we moved to Connecticut when I was a, a teenager, and I ended up going to public school out in Connecticut. So I had a mix of of both public and private, and then ended up at a private. We bounced around a little and ended up at a private school right before college. So I got a good view of both. Um, like I guess what I'm saying is, is like because I think you know there's a lot of uh, people in their teens who also listen to this show. And, and, and trying to figure out how to get into the right college and what to do. And when you sit across from somebody who's gone to Harvard, uh, I went to Boston University, so sure. I'm like the redheaded stepchild sure. to, to you. Yeah, um, I would come to your school to have fun. That would be the difference. <laughs> I remember those days. <laughs> yes, unfortunately, the women from Harvard didn't come to our school yes. to have fun. It was just yes. the men to, to yes. take the women away from us. So. That is true. But the point being is that, like, you... you the goal, I would imagine, as a student, when you sort of know it's attainable, is how do I get into Harvard? Mm -hmm. And so what was the mindset of you in high school? Did you, like, from the moment you were 14, say, hey, I am going to get, I want to go to the best school. I want to get into Harvard. Were your parents saying, hey, listen, it's Harvard or bust or what was <laughs> happening there? No, my parents were sort of... Um good hippie uh, uh upper west side liberals so they did not um they did not care very much or at least i don't have any memories of them pushing for harvard i was uh i think i was more intent on just getting out in the world i loved new york but i think it started in me a desire to to get out there that that living in a small apartment on the upper west side was probably not the whole world. Um, so to me, I just wanted to go somewhere else for college. Harvard felt great uh, and exciting. It wasn't, it didn't feel like the place. In fact, I, I'm maybe unlike a lot of people who, who go there and a little more demented than most people go there. Cause when I got there, I, I had a little bit of a chip on my shoulder about Harvard. It felt not necessarily like me to me. I had a probably stereotypical view of Harvard that it would be, you know, handsome, uh, rich men wearing letter sweaters and, uh, you know, debutante women um, and the children of ambassadors. Uh, some of that was true, frankly, um, but it's a more diverse and interesting place in that I have to admit, I spent the first two years kind of revolting against what I saw as the Harvard of it um, and felt sort of dragged into that culture a little bit more in a way that I'm not necessarily proud of. It was a little bit juvenile. Uh, I rapidly became uh, the head of Harvard's civil rights organization, which was there mainly black students uh, and me, uh, staging sit-ins against the faculty and, you know, uh, sort of kicking up as much uh, noise as we could. And then I proceeded to travel so much during college, um, mainly in Africa and in Europe, that 
I kind of screwed up my my career. I was one of the few uh, five year plan kids at Harvard, which at most schools is not unheard of. At at Harvard, it's not only frowned upon, but uh, I remember I spent senior year living with three guys I'd never met who were sophomores. You know, I was the Spicoli type in their uh, rooming group. So Forrest Gump and For- Spicoli. Exactly. These references are incredible. These are not models to aspire to. Why were you to traveling all over the place? Um, I to Africa. went. I, I it started in Africa when I was eighteen. Uh, this was summer after freshman year. Given my juvenile revolt against Harvard uh, and and that sort of culture I wanted I just wanted to get away and my mom was always traveling my dad was always traveling my mom spoke French and a couple other languages so I I had a good healthy sense of the world out there and so I went to do volunteer work in Ghana in West Africa which turned out to be much more extreme than I expected. It was an international work camp, they called it. I think I was picturing hot Swedish chicks, uh, and it turned hot out... Hot Swedish chicks in Ghana? Well, it may have been far-fetched. I may have just been wanting hot Swedish chicks more than rational, you know. If you want hot Swedish chicks, why don't you go to Sweden? Yeah, I guess I thought... Work I in was, a work camp in Sweden. I was picturing caring hot Swedish chicks. <laughs> hot Swedish chicks who would go help help uh, bloated, uh, <laughs> bellied African children. Uh, and uh, I went there, and it turned out that international work camp meant that there were people from, you know, Ghana and Togo. Uh, so it was sort of an all-African, uh, very remote village, uh, and it was during the rainy season, uh, and it was overwhelmed with malaria and other things, and it turned out to be very hardcore. I stayed three months. Back then, I, there were no cell phones or anything, so I didn't have any communication with home for three months. I got malaria, unfortunately, and got very sick, um, and built a health clinic in the middle of nowhere out of mud bricks with a bunch of, of terrific sort of local volunteers. And it kind of changed my life, um, uh, not to sound like um, Sally Struthers or anything, it, but it did. It was a pretty radical move, and I loved it. And I loved Africa, and I loved being out in the world and, and to some extent being a, a help that way. But uh, I, I kind of, that changed a lot, so I went back to Harvard. I quit the English department, which felt stodgy and silly, even though I had... Uh, always wanted to be a writer. I switched to the social anthropology department um, so that I could keep going back to Africa. The social anthropology department, in contrast to the English department, was a tiny department that had the one transgendered kid and the kid from Poland with the missionary parents. So it was like the couch from Animal House. (laughs) That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Yes, these are right. The people at the at the last wedding table uh, that no one talks to. Um, I'm laughing so hard because you just every five minutes it's like Spicoli, Forrest Gump, Sally Struthers. It's like you're just it just keeps going. Yeah, yeah. It's a mosaic that I'm <laughs> I'm creating here. Uh, and uh, anyway, I loved anthropology, um, as dorky as it as it was, and uh, and it gave me a chance to keep going back to Africa. So I went back 
junior year, I did my anthropology field work in Kenya and Tanzania. And you went alone. I went alone. Um, uh, again, I did field work among uh, the Nandi tribe, which is a sister tribe of the Maasai. Um, and I uh, was there for a few months, and then I uh, lived in Italy for a long time. The Italian thing was fantastic because I had gone... This was Swedish was, women there. No Swedish women again. <laughs> I've now searched across the globe in the wrong countries. Uh, Italy, come on! I should have had a bad. I, I, Italy was was better in that department because I ended up rooming with a couple of Italian women uh, who were very uh, took pity on me because I was a. A, a solo traveler. physically or emotionally <laughs> a little of both i got it well that's both. nice thank you All yeah right. i'm gonna try and conjure an image that is better for you than it actually was well it's working good uh so i that was supposed to be so the university after going and and living in africa i thought i would sort of rejoin society and uh i went to the university of bologna which is the oldest university in europe and there's a novelist who i think still teaches there taught there uh named umberto eco who wrote the name of the rose and these wonderful big books and i was going to study with this esteemed professor at this esteemed university it being italy uh five days before i got there the students all in a classic italian move uh went on strike no particular reason. They were riding bikes in the hall and, and drinking wine when I got there. Instead of doing the responsible thing and going back to Harvard and saying, gee, my semester didn't work out, uh, I stayed and got an apartment with three Italian guys, uh, got a job as a bouncer. Did, did they help you emotionally and physically? They did, <laughs> just physically. <laughs> okay. These guys, they're, they're guys. I'm There's painting no a mental picture again yeah. that's better than it was. Absolutely, okay, absolutely. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so I got a job as a bouncer at a punk rock club, uh, and ended up staying for seven months or something further screwing up my, uh, my college career. Um, and by the time I went back, Harvard quickly informed me that I was to get no credit <laughs> for the previous year and a half or whatever it was. Um, so I ended up staying longer at Harvard, but, um, but then got a scholarship after, College for graduate school for writing. Um, graduate school at Harvard? No, it's uh, a it was a rotary scholarship where they will pay for a year of your graduate work uh, wherever you want to go. Oh, got it. When they say that, they generally mean you get to choose Cambridge or Oxford. Uh, I said, God, that's terrific. I'd love to go to the University of Botswana in Southern Africa. They said, absolutely not. And I pointed at their obscure bylaws and said... Well, it says you got to pay wherever I want to go. And uh, so I went to the University of Botswana. I was the first full-time white student at the University of Botswana, University of 10,000 kids. And uh, That's just amazing, amazing. Nikki. Amazing, so Nikki. I just, I, I, I have to talk about, I want to talk about this. I just want to just ask you two quick little questions that uh, I hope my audience doesn't shoot me for. Sure. Number one. Did you rent the paper chase before you went to Harvard? <laughs> I was that before. I might have even seen it at John Houseman. You saw oh, that? Oh, sure. Yeah, I, but I'm wondering. That? I may have seen it, it at Harvard, at which Harvard. was surreal. Yeah, got it. That and Love Story were the things yes. to watch. You know, at Harvard. Yeah, yeah. Second question: Something we always hear about Harvard men. You know, you always hear about Is this Harvard the no men. Penis thing? Harvard men. No. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm getting another mental picture. Uh, 
But one thing that no one ever talks about and no one ever really describes is what is a woman who goes to Harvard like that's different from all other women? I'm not talking about after they graduate. I'm talking about there in the school. Is there something like that's uniquely different and extraordinary about the way they not only navigate with men but handle the world while they're between 18 and 21 years old because mm-hmm. no one ever talks about it. <laughs> you think it might be like Stepford. There might be something going on. There. I don't there's, know, but I a... thought you might like, like in other words, like, you know how when you're Jewish, your mom says to you, listen, uh, you know, could you please uh, go out with a Jewish girl and not, not the girl who's the shiksa or whatever? When you're at Harvard, is there this thing if you're a guy in Harvard that you're like, God, if I could go out with a girl from Harvard or are you always going to Boston University to say, oh, these girls from Harvard, fuck it. I don't want to be around them. They're too this, this, this and this. Let's find a girl from Simmons or Boston University. So I just I no one ever talks about that. And I was hoping, even though we're not here to talk about that, I think for like a short few minutes, I thought it might be something that sure. might be interesting. I teased you with the Swedish girls, and I put you on you this put track, me, didn't you, I? This you, is you, all my you fault. You made me get into a detour. This is my fault. Um, you know, I, uh, I'm of the conviction. I may be in the minority here, and I think I've I've offended friends of mine when I've said this. Uh, having having gone through Harvard, and I think I've already completely ruined my credentials as someone to commentate on uh, on Harvard since I was sort of an oddball there but um i i'm of the conviction that it, the the sort of um layout of Harvard demographically and typewise human typewise is probably shockingly similar to the layout at Boston University and the layout of Texas and Michigan and Swarthmore and other places, I genuinely think there is the precise same ratio of ditzes to smart people to jockey types to nerds as there is in just about any human enclave. Harvard would be horrified to hear that. Most of my friends who went to Harvard might be horrified. you know, the difference is everyone's really good at the SATs. You know, there's a baseline smartness there. And and uh, you were talking about navigating early. I think there's a, a, a skill at navigating systems among most of those people who go to Harvard. It would be true of the women and the men. But I certainly encountered people, um, and people may say this about me, who were... Um, unimpressive as people, uh, a little bit dull, a little bit dumb, um, wildly smart as well, but in, in pretty much the same ratios as, uh, I would encounter at, at your average mall, if I could collect those people. I think we sort of fall into those types. And when you ask about women, I think, sure, there were recklessly ambitious women who felt unlike the girl next door and there were girl next doors who felt shockingly uh you know normal and um it's a it's a collection that way i never and i may have failed at women at that point in my life because i never found any key to 
you know, the the Harvard woman, capital H, capital W, in any in any uh, wise way, unfortunately. Got it. So getting back, you're you're the only white student at this university. Yeah. And here you come from an area where you're at Harvard, where if I'm not mistaken, the majority of students are white. They were, although in my crowd running the uh, the uh, civil rights organization, my my, my circles but were you, different. But, but you put yes. yourself in that. So, I did. I so did. you were comfortable in situations where you were reversed and you were the minority. Why do you think you were so comfortable in 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 each city? Like you chose the civil rights thing. You chose to go to the University of Botswana. You choose chose to go there to find uh, uh, Swedish Botswani women. Sure, sure. Um, but the fact is, is that you made these choices to go across the globe to take that kind of like leap, knowing that you know it was completely different from anything that you'd ever experienced before. What what in your makeup? Where did that come from? I think that is a. It's taken me a long time to figure that out because it's only recently that I could go back and see the pattern. Um, I can probably trace it to two things, one of which is related to, to entertainment. One is when I grew up in New York City, um, I loved New York. I loved the mix of things, uh, the wacky friends of my parents, but also, uh, you know, the kids and the diversity and the diversity of neighborhoods. You know, we lived right under Harlem and my best friend was from Harlem, African-American kid. And navigating between those neighborhoods and hearing the languages on the street, I loved it so much, all of which was brought into sharp contrast when we moved to Connecticut, which I hated. Uh, and it's nothing against Connecticut. I look at Connecticut now and it looks like a lovely place to live. Back then it felt so boring to me and was where we moved. Fairfield County was, uh, very white, very, everyone knew what kind of car their dad drove. Uh, I was so ill-equipped for it that I was miserable. Um, and, uh, and something about that contrast made me choose at every choice I could find to find uh, an eclectic mix of things, to be in the minority if I could, just to be, to experience that vibrancy again and that fun fish out of water feeling of here are human beings I never would have known I'd be in the same room as. Uh, I think I was always trying to get that back, that, that great childhood I had. Um, that's the, that's the post therapy answer to, to that question. And I think the other thing, which is a little bit about entertainment is, uh, I feel I was such a reader as a kid and I read so many books and stories and I loved them so much. I feel like every great story was about someone taking an adventure. I mean, and it could be a comedy, it could be a cartoon, it could be anything, there's usually a sense of adventure there. And I think I got so hooked on reading everything I could come across that it was only a matter of time till I thought, God, if you can have an adventure of your own, why wouldn't you do that every time? So I think I was always trying to be the main character of stories all the time. Really cool stuff. So how did you decide that you wanted to be a writer? Obviously, your parents was writing for The New Yorker. 
how do you get from going to the uh, University of Botswana <laughs> and being in that situation to graduating and saying, you know, uh, I want to be an author now? Sure. Um, I didn't start writing. I actually have always, you know, even when I was a kid, was writing in journals and notebooks and stuff. And actually, when I was at the University of Botswana, I wrote an article about the Botswana adventure turned into uh, sort of a controversial adventure because for all the reasons you're startled by the story, uh, the heads of the University of Botswana were startled by my story and highly suspicious of uh, a white kid from Harvard who suddenly appeared at the University of Botswana and was, you know, coaching the basketball team and heading a creative writing workshop. Why did he choose Botswana? They thought I was CIA, to, to <laughs> put it bluntly, and it became a, a, a State Department case. Um, and they basically kicked me out eventually out of suspicion. It's a long story, but, uh, you know, it was a time of George Bush Sr. Um, in the White House and America was actually uh, building a military base in Botswana, but not telling the government. They were doing plenty of stuff and it tied into a real suspicion of me being there. Suffice it to say, I was eventually kicked out of uh, of Botswana and uh, wrote an article about it for The Nation, which while I was there, I sent the article to the nation. So that sort of kicked off journalism uh, for me. And I ended up moving to South Africa. And uh, and it was just when Nelson Mandela was released from prison back back then, 92, I believe. Um, so I was very swept up in politics and stuff there, all of which started a journalistic thing going. And I started uh, writing that way, and then um, and then moved back to New York and started as an editor at Random House, and I think just being around writers and working on editing, you know, great authors and all that got me um, got me excited about writing more, and uh, I eventually started with some other editors. I was a an assistant editor at that point. Started a new division of Putnam called Riverhead Books that's still around. Uh, they publish great books uh, even now, but I quit after a couple of years to write full time because uh, there was a book I wanted to write and Riverhead actually knew I was going to quit and write. And so they signed up the book. So they published my uh, my first book after I left. Fantastic. Tell me, how did you go from writing books and hold up in your apartment and, mm -hmm. and writing books and publishing books to getting the job as vice president of corporate communications at News Corp and writing speeches for the most powerful guy in the world, Rupert Murdoch. How does that happen? It was uh, as wacky a turn as you can you can imagine it was. I was the, the real story is I was writing full time. I was under contract, I believe, for my second book. Um and uh, we had a baby. I had married another writer who she was writing, Amanda Beasley, at the time. She was writing plays and wrote a column for Self Magazine and was writing a book. And we were classic struggling writers in our tiny crack house apartment on the Lower <laughs> East Side. And uh, we had a baby. We had one of those classic four-in-the-morning conversations about healthcare. Uh, and, uh, insurance and a steady paycheck. 
And she was a good feminist from Barnard who said, in this rotten world, you are going to be paid more than I am. You have to go get the job. I said, you're probably right. And I called the one dude I knew who I played basketball with who had been a writer. Uh, and I had seen him recently wearing a pinstripe suit. Uh, and I literally, no lie, great guy named Gary Ginsburg. He had started George Magazine with JFK Jr. Do you remember George yes, Magazine? Yes, I do. Uh, I and, do. Uh, and we played basketball together and we're, we're friends. And I said, I saw you in that suit. What the hell do you do now? You go into an office? Tell me about that. And he said, yeah, I work at News Corporation. And I said, what's News Corporation? He said, it's the media company. You know, it's... Uh, run by Rupert Murdoch. And I said, wow, I'm not sure that's for me. I'm, you know, liberal, it's going to be a clash. I can't imagine. <laughs> Sounds like the Death Star. Uh, and he said, no, 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 you're an idiot. Come on in. Let's talk about maybe you could work here. I'm sure we could use someone to to write. And that's what you do. And, and I came in, I talked to him and I talked to Peter Chernin. And Peter had made the decision that they did need somebody to write all the boring stuff that no one could write, the annual report, write the website, um, you know, uh, whatever else came up, uh, you know, quarterly earnings reports and whatnot. So I thought, all right, I don't know anything about this, but sure. And I started working there and uh, writing all the boring stuff. Then several weeks in, Peter was giving the commencement address at Berkeley, where he went to college. And so I wrote, and I had gotten to know Peter, and I wrote the commencement address for him. Now, he, did he ask you to write it? Or he did, did he? yeah. And uh, we did that, and that was really fun, and I really liked Peter, and we liked each other. And then I wrote another big speech for Peter, and then I sort of became his his speechwriter, and he gives a lot. What you don't know about these guys is they give a lot of speeches. It sounds like the weirdest job in the world, but between investor conferences and uh, earnings reports and all that stuff and the occasional commencement address, the uh, visionary speech about the future of media. They're, they're regular spokespeople for media in a way, these heads of companies. So when you write the speech yeah. for him, let's say you, when you wrote the first speech and you yeah. send it to him, does he give you notes? Does he tell you what he wants changed or does he just, does he just say, this is great, thank you? Um, it really goes, I've written a lot of speeches now for a lot of people. It really goes person by person, their, their method for Peter. Um, he was very hands-on and smart about it. It was a real conversation. What should we talk about? You know, he always had ideas. I would have ideas and we'd sort of kick it around together. Um, and, uh, you know, once it got to, to Rupert, it was a completely, uh, different process, which began with, uh, the, the, there was a very, I think I can talk about this publicly. I'll talk about this publicly because it's you. Uh, Thanks, I, man. I, News Corp had a big opportunity. Rupert was the first Westerner invited to address the newly elected Chinese party leadership. So in Chinese government, when they elect a new leadership, they have something called the college that is a sort of post-election educational stage for these leaders, and they talk to business leaders and stuff. 
And Rupert was the guy invited, and it was a huge opportunity for News Corp to move into China more than they had. Um, so uh, Rupert asked me to write his speech, or you know, the people around Rupert thought, well, you're writing speeches, you're here, give this a try, and it's very important. And uh, and it was. You know, for me, these all felt like creative writing assignments. I'm enough of a dork that I thought, this is fun. Now my my fictional main character is a 72-year-old Australian media mogul. Uh, sure, I can pull that off. It's like a Nathaniel Hawthorne short story or something. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and so I wrote this speech for China. It was incredibly tricky because it's China, so you have to instruct without instructing and be very um, reverential. And it also had to survive translation and censorship. And so it was a, it was a good creative writing assignment. I, I liked the, the challenges of it. And I wrote this thing and completely making it up. I mean, just, you know, what's a good example of media that would be exciting? Oh, Sesame Street. And I wrote this whole thing about Sesame Street and Oh, the, uh, you know, just say no policy. That was a media thing that was good for a country. Let's talk about that. Um, and it went, uh, when they went to China, it went extremely well. Um, and from that moment on, I was like Cyrano de Bergerac. <laughs> I wrote, uh, I, I just, you know, when there was a speech Spicoli. <laughs> Forrest Gump, yeah. Sally Struthers, and, and now Cyrano de Bergerac. Yes, that's right. All right. That's me. Yeah, the mosaic is building. Um, so uh, so anyway, so then I wrote Rupert's speeches from then on. And, and the fun part of that, at first, everyone was nervous about me writing uh, for Rupert Murdoch, and correctly so. These are smart businessmen and uh, educated gentlemen who were uh, right to be wary of the goofball novelist sort of freelancing Rupert's words. Um, but uh, but the fun part was once Rupert, who is really pretty amazing at this skill of identifying people who can do things that are helpful to the company, and he really is. I mean, when you look at Rupert's history, say what you will about him, uh, the fact that he can, you know, let the village voice be a news corporation entity for a long time with, you know, its politics and, uh, you know, NASCAR and the Dodgers, as well as old time newspapers in small towns of Australia. And, you know, he's he's really pretty visionary that way. I was a tiny example of that where. I performed a, a service that, that was valuable at the time, and um, he really, he basically, at the point that I started writing well for him, and, and there was an effect to this, I then wrote a speech um, to the, that in the middle of Australia's national elections that favored one candidate over the other, who actually was the more liberal Labor Party candidate. Um, and uh, I wrote that speech and it went very well and got a lot of supporters for the candidate that we liked and, uh, and he ended up winning the election. When I had done that, um, I really had free reign and all the people in between me and Rupert sort of went away. And then it became a matter of just meeting Rupert in his office and Rupert, unlike Peter, um, wasn't very interested in being hands-on on speeches. Not surprisingly, he doesn't, doesn't have time. So... That became actually really fun is he would say, you know, well, we have the investor conference and 
everyone's expecting me to say, you know, this is going to be a tough year and, uh, well, let's shake it up a little bit. You figure out what to do. And I would go off and write something radical about how everyone thinks that, you know, uh, no one's interested in newspapers anymore, but we actually see an exciting future for newspapers. And I would think of examples and, you know, it really was dorky, dorky, creative writing for me, but really been, fun. It might've been dorky, creative writing, but the fact is for all of our listeners, is as you can see, Peter Chernin gives him an opportunity, a little, little crack of the door. Mm -hmm. He gives him a speech that I would say the first speech he gave him was not life-threatening. Yeah, that's right. He if worse comes to worse, four stoned Berkeley students would fall asleep. That's yeah. right. So he gave him one assignment, which he knew he wanted to see. Would he be less than what he expected? Would he be exactly what he expected? Or would he exceed all expectations, knowing that the people watching him had the highest expectations? Mm -hmm. And that's what you did. You exceeded his expectations. Then the next time you exceeded them and then word got out and all of a sudden the guy above Peter Chernin, Rupert Murdoch says, hey, let me get rid of my speechwriter that I already have. Mm. You know, Rupert Murdoch had a speechwriter. You took that person's job away from them mm. because they realized, hey, I let me give this guy to now when they gave you a shot for one of Rupert's speeches, chances are the other person who was writing the speeches still was getting a shot to do a few. Mm -hmm. But then that ends rather quickly when you do great work, which That's is true. the inspiration behind your whole career is just doing great work and then moving to the next level where people uh, you know, you blow people away. So, so let's keep going. So now you're working as vice president of development for 20th Century Fox Television because of your work here. They say, hey, why don't we give this guy a shot doing something that he's never done before yes. in his entire life? That is and, uh, and But let's just let's just <laughs> hand him the keys to the kingdom. You know, hey, uh, no one else has gotten the job done. So let's let's right. uh, the way we want it to be done. Let us give it to him. It was a version of that. It was a it was a, a more modest version of that. The real version was that P it was Peter's idea. I have to uh, I'm grateful for it. Uh, although, to be honest, I was such a dickhead New Yorker that when he said, you're a creative guy. My last couple novels were published by HarperCollins, I should say, which was owned, is owned by News Corporation. So they were very aware that I was writing these books. And Peter, who had gotten to be a friend at that point, said to me, um, you don't want to write these speeches for the rest of your life. You know, you're a creative guy. You should work with me more closely out in Hollywood, in Los Angeles, and um you know, having been at the News Corp headquarters in New York, um, the idea was I should I should move out west. It made a lot of sense creatively. I really was just such a sort of uh, numb nuts New Yorker uh, guy that I immediately said no and said, I just I can't picture L.A. You know, I've been trained since I was two to sneer at L.A. Um, and you know what happens when you say no to anybody in power. <laughs> That's true. The yes. power of no is an incredible thing. That is really true. It drives people mental. Yes. I've learned it at a few junctures, actually. And I 
I wish I could say I did it on purpose. I didn't, but you're you're absolutely right. It's it's chum in the waters. And for so then he reason. just went full force because Peter Chernin is not going to lose when it comes to you know it's bad enough to lose when you're going full force against the behemoths. Mm. But to lose to a guy who was uh, some annoying pipsqueak who just you're just trying to transfer this fucking guy and he won't. I mean, you know. he's trying. To, you know, what's amazing about Peter and I don't think I get, you know, in, in the opening story, I, I, I hope I didn't come across the wrong way. Uh, this is a guy who, you know, is such a visionary. And the fact that he chose you as somebody who was he believed was somebody who could take it to the next level. And would, was willing to give you that job, knowing that there were a hundred people in town that had more experience than you. But he believed in your gift, and he believed you could transition into anything. That's the greatest honor yeah. in the world. And the fact that you turned him down, that made him even more. Yeah, I, I, in truth, I didn't turn him down for long because he did something very generous, which was he flew me to L.A. and I got to meet with uh, the heads of all the companies out in L.A. So I got to sort of choose what I wanted to do, uh, which was a terrific—I wish I could do that tour now. It was actually fascinating. You're doing a version of it, actually, in a, in a way with your, your podcast is dropping in on all these entertainment lives— so the fact that I could sit with, you know, Peter Rice, who was running uh, Fox Searchlight then, and Gail Berman, who was running the network, and sort of sit with these people. And I knew a lot of them from my News Corp work, but, and say, what do you do? Gee, that sounds fun. Um, was, you know, incredibly luxurious and, and just educational. Um, so I did. I went, went to 20th Century Fox TV Given everything you're saying about how many uh, qualified people there were in line for those jobs, you can imagine how beloved I was by my colleagues. And this uh, is the whole thing what we talked about in the beginning about the navigation. Yes. And so you went into a situation, and when I had my uh, podcast with Kent Alterman, he went toe-to-toe -to -toe with me on this because, you know, he's heard me say it a few times, and it, I think it upsets him. When I say that, um, you know, when you go into a situation like that, no one wants you to win. Mm -hmm. The only one that wants you to win is the guy that brought you in because he's not threatened by you to take his job. Right. But everybody else is like fighting in the trenches. And, that, you know, and and but Kent's opinion was is that it's not always that way. There are camaraderies with groups of people and it's, mm -hmm. uh, it shouldn't be lumped in that way. And I do agree with him. But for the most part, somebody coming in and all these people, when you came in, there were people in that office that believed that they were in line for that job. Yeah, I have to say... Um Kent is stoned a huge amount of the time. Uh, not not to cast aspersions, but uh, Kent's opinion may not be right. Um, the uh, yeah, it's I mean not to overstate it. And there, uh, listen, there are plenty of good people who are happy to have good people around and are looking to have real friendships. I, I wouldn't say plenty. There's a few people. Um, there's a lot of people to be real about it who. 60% of their cranial activity on a daily basis is devoted to uh, who can I beat in order to succeed? That it's like a, you know, game of Stratego or something. And it's, uh, we only have so many brain cells. And the fact that, uh, and I definitely learned that coming, and I was probably naive. I should have, uh, should have been more world-weary and savvy. Uh, but no, there were 
honestly people who would not show me where the bathroom was, uh, let alone, uh, you know, help or. And or, how many or, of those people are still around today? Um, not all of them are dead. No, uh, I'm talking about how many are you talking dead in the no, business? No, I mean dead in the corporate sense. Uh, you know, some of them are, are not still doing it. The problem is most when, of them are not still, most doing of them it. are not still doing it because the truth is when 60% of your activity is devoted to how do I kill someone? You're probably missing some great creative opportunities. Um, and we've all known people and you know, the audience here knows wherever you work, you're always going to find that. And it's how do you navigate when you know, people don't want you to succeed and how do you make them feel safe while you pass them like a rocket ship. Yes. And which is what you did. So how did you navigate with the people that hated you and didn't want you to win and were sabotaging you? How did you do it and how did you move up? I, for me, it was a matter of, um, you know, uh, being on the lookout for people you can trust. I, I'm, I'm not very good at the shark act. So I like, when I can find someone who can be a, a friend and someone to roll your eyes with and make jokes at, with around the conference table, I'm so excited, probably boyishly, stupidly excited. And uh, uh, But so I'm always on the lookout for that. At the same time, I guess I was just always determined not to get too sucked up in the Game of Thrones of it. Um, it's very easy to to be sucked up in it. Um, it's kind of a losing battle. The truth is, uh, and it's sort of the dirty secret of this stuff, is um, you might survive two years longer by being strategic that way and puncturing other people's pitches and, uh, you know, being the first hand up in the conference room or, you know, whispering about that VP doesn't deserve it and, and hope those whispers get to the right person. All the games that are played, you know, they can work. They can work for a couple of years. Um, the truth is, those the people who are good at that are usually not the people chosen to be the leaders or the people who are given, you know, a huge uh, slate of stuff to creatively handle because, you know, the, the leaders of companies are people capable of great ideas or people capable of enabling other people's great ideas. So in a way, I fear maybe uh, simplistic. I feel like the system favors kind people in a weird way, people amenable to incoming people and incoming ideas. It's not something you hear about Hollywood. It's the opposite of what you hear. But honestly, at the end of the day, the people who really get far and become exciting presences are basically the kind-hearted people. They may not come off. They may be brusque. They may drive a Ferrari. They may scream at their assistant. Um, often they do, unfortunately. You know, the, 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 the game can drive you a little crazy. Um, but it's, it's not the total dickheads, really. Um, those people survive a little bit longer. They do assassinate some people. They usually have some success. And then it kind of ends, and they get kind of kicked out. Um, I don't know. I, I, it's a little bit of a social experiment that I'm running and I'll tell you how it goes at the end of my career. We'll see. Um, but I, hope, I am, I hope I'm around. I, as do I, I hope I'm around. Uh, 
I guess the social experiment is, can you do this stuff and be good at it and, and assemble a really exciting, you know, slate of, of stuff, television, movies, whatever you're doing, plays, um, without turning into a total asshole? Uh, it's it's hard. There aren't that many great examples, you know? There's I, think, some... I think you're a great example. I, I I hope I'm I'm a clumsy semi example. I hope I can go you know uh, a a few more steps, but um, I know but, you will. So, yeah. So there, there's definitely I've definitely had moments of being taken aside by uh, you know people I I won't mention, but prominent people in the industry who, in a very nice gesture, have taken me under their wing to give me some advice and and gotten the advice of uh be more of a dick uh that you are a little bit too open a little bit too good you know the look at the people look at the you know the examples of people who are the most famous names in producing or um you know uh on the creative side and and they're animals and you got to be an animal and i get it that's probably true uh I think I'd probably rather have a, a really fun career for six years uh, and get chewed up and spat out and end up writing shitty novels in a small house in Vermont with my kids um, than have a, you know, 30 year career of screaming. Uh, it just sounds more fun to me. That sounds more fun to me. Tell me about some of the shows that you uh, developed while you were at Fox? Uh, sure. So, uh, I worked on shows like, uh, my name is Earl, uh, ended up on NBC. Um, how I met your mother that ended up on CBS. Uh, one of the first shows I developed was a show that never ended up anywhere. Uh, but was one of my, my proudest shows, which was a show that uh, very few people have heard of called Awesome Town. That was the first, uh, the first production of Lonely Island, uh, Andy and Yorma and Akiva, um, that uh, was literally unbroadcastable. I mean, this was insanity for the most part. It was a variety show, sort of half variety show, half sketches, but included, you know, sketches about, uh, extraterrestrials that had both sets of genitalia and the astronaut stranded with them um, and uh, various other, you know, dirty dancing with, uh, you know, uh, uh, Akiva's mom. Um, it was, it, I finally convinced Gail Berman, who was head of Fox, to watch 20 seconds of it in the pilot process. And she uh, couldn't have been more adamant about rejecting it and uh, rightly so. But it was one of those things that, you know, months later, Jack Black would call and say, I'm going on SNL and I want to do that alien sketch. Can I get the rights to it? And it just has become this. Uh, I, I noticed that the guys put it on their website and it gets all these hits and people watch it all the time. Um, so I guess it's on the air in a in a modern sense. Um, and what did you work on that actually got on the broadcast network? Uh, apart from How I Met Your Mother and My Name is Earl, I did, uh, a show with Victor Fresco called Better Off Ted, um, that ended up on ABC, uh... But nothing made it to the Fox broadcast Oh, network. to Fox? That's a good question. What did I do at Fox that got on the air? Um... 
sure there's shows I'm not thinking of, but nothing major. That's okay. Um, I liked 20th Century Fox and still do because it goes everywhere. Um, and often it's not just the feeder school stuff that that does the best. It's nice, except if you realize uh, that the Modern Family went to ABC. And yeah, to, exactly. That's not so nice. Exactly. Um, so in 2007, you moved on to partner with Judd Apatow. How did that happen? So I had gotten to know a lot of the Apatow posse, uh, Nick Stoller and people like that, um, just in television work, and uh, had gotten to know uh, Jimmy Miller, uh, whom you know. Uh, who, great manager who runs Mosaic. Yes. And represents Will Ferrell and Judd Correct. Apatow and Sasha Baron Cohen and most of the Western Hemisphere. Yes, he does. Uh, and uh, and uh, a terrific guy who... Um, sort of thought I would be a good, as I got to know Jimmy, he thought I would be a good partner for Judd. Um, and so we had sort of, while I was an executive at, at 20th, um, uh, it came to the point of, of either being promoted and being the, the head of comedy, which if I were uh, a more sane person, I probably would have aspired to like most of my colleagues, but I frankly was starting to feel like I didn't want to, I'd, I'd rather be among the writers and directors and actors than live in the conference room. It, it felt a little like a conference room life to me. It's, I, I have many friends who do it very well, who are better at navigating those waters, speaking of navigation. So I was starting to think I wanted to shift a little bit, had great experience, but would like to shift a little more back to the creative side. So it was good timing. The idea of being in the, you know, running the Apatow stuff, I uh, felt like exactly what I wanted. And Jimmy um, set me up with Judd. Uh, I think for Judd, who was not looking to build a corporation, he was looking for, you know, one guy who could uh, be sort of half writer and half creative and whatever is kind of a perfect match. So uh he had just, uh, you know, after he did um, Knocked Up and uh, 40-Year-Old Virgin and Superbad, the floodgates sort of opened and studios were incredibly excited about anything he did. And I got to benefit from that by coming over and um, sort of developing all the stuff for him and working with the writers and uh, and all that. So it was a huge sprint of fun movies. It was, you know, I came over during Forgetting Sarah Marshall and, uh, you know, Step Brothers and Pineapple Express and uh, uh, Get Him to the Greek. And uh, and then Bridesmaids was the last thing I developed with uh, with Kristen Wiig and her writing partner, Annie Mumolo. Way to go out on a lull. Yeah. Jesus. <laughs> It was a really fun run. I, listen, the fun part about that, and it's all a, a, a credit to Judd, is it was literally tele. It was movies at a television pace. You know, as you know, you sort of choose in this business between the turtle crawl of uh, you know movies. It's sort of a turtle crawl surrounded by assassins shooting <laughs> at the turtle, uh, and uh, and then television, which is you know, brisk and terrific, but also spazzy in its own way and erratic. And those shows, you know, 99% of them go away. So, uh, the idea of being able to do movies with the freedom we could do them, um, you know, I really, at the time I knew how valuable it was. I, I have to say, I look back now that I run my own ship, uh, smaller ship and, you know, try and do this stuff. I look back on that time and think, God, that was really, really fucking fun. I mean, 
yeah, it was really fun. Your every movie is more successful than the next. Your final movie you do there, I believe it made over $200 million. It did. It was, uh, I think, still our most successful movie. And I have to say, uh, the most uphill movie. You know, it's easy to be sort of historical revisionists and say, God, it's great. We did all those dude movies. And then we took that to the female side and rocketed it. It was really hard. We were surrounded by skeptics more than than uh but one why, would but expect. why did they care the budget of the movie was what it was tiny it was like why did they know, care 30 I mean, something I mean, uh, melissa tiny. mccarthy was probably working for you know sixty-five thousand oh, yeah. dollars. absolutely it's it like was... why you know which is called schedule f for those of you who don't know that <laughs> that means what you do if you're a film producer or a studio you hire an actor for the entire run of the film and they have to be if they if you haven't ever seen the film that's fine if you have them one scene whatever $65,000 that's it and i'm sure most all of those people except for maybe Kristen Wiig uh, were uh, you know so this is what i don't understand what's the risk i mean I, it's, it's i know the pna the you know the the advertising maybe 15 million dollars 13 million whatever it was it ended up being more yeah. but Still, I just don't get it sometimes. You know, I think there's an over... I think there's a couple things. One was just the process, and it's a, a credit to Kristen and Annie, but that began as when they gave me, I believe, a 180-page script that was that they had written themselves that was highly personal. It was really Annie's story about Kristen because they had been in the Groundlings together, and Kristen got on SNL and started to be among fancy friends and was always in the city. And it was sort of Annie's perspective on their friendship. Um, and for those of you who don't know, the normal comedy script, oh, yes. when it gets when it gets put together and it's actually ready for shooting, if you want a successful comedy, maybe other people will disagree with me, but your goal is to try to get it as close to 90 minutes as possible mm -hmm. with the credits because right. and maybe if you have extra maybe it could be 100 minutes or 110 but you just don't want it so and and for those of you who don't know uh when you're writing uh multi-camera uh television each page in multi-camera television is 30 seconds so if you had a pilot script or something it's going to be like 42 pages or something like that. If you have a single camera script for a television show, which is on a network, it would be like, you know, hopefully around 22 pages, 24, if you're going to cut some stuff down. And it holds true to scripts, one minute per page. So when he says it's 180 pages, that means right. it's a 180 minute script. Right. It's a three hour movie. That's yeah. gone. There's, 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 yeah. there's, there's no way that yeah. would even happen. So as a development executive, the, the credit to Nikki is the fact that he worked with them to cut 50% of the movie out mm. and, and, and create the greatest moments of it. But I think my, my biggest question here is you're, you're, you're at the highest level. You've proven that you can do it. You can write your own ticket, do whatever you want to do. And then you go back and you work with Peter Chernin, who you've already worked with before. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I, and doing television there under his deal. And I, I always, sometimes I say this story, and I hope I uh, don't uh, bore my audience here. Uh, uh, Jim Morrison, 50 years ago, 
uh, was at the Ed Sullivan show. Did his first Ed Sullivan show with the doors. They got a standing ovation. People went crazy. The audience went crazy. The manager comes up to him and says, Listen, Jim, what the fuck did you do? The producer just came up to me and said, You trashed the entire dressing room, thousands of dollars for the damage. He said, We will never, ever, ever do the Ed Sullivan show again. And Jim just looked at his manager and said, We've already done the Ed Sullivan show. <laughs> so why did you go back and do the Peter Chernin show again? That's an interesting question. Uh, it didn't feel like anything I had done before. And I'm I'm a subscriber to the Jim Morrison theory, as you can probably tell by my weird life story. Um, I'm definitely an adherent to that. Uh, to me, this was, and, and Peter and I had, had gotten to be, uh, friendly enough that he had told me he was, you know, going to leave News Corporation and start this company and, um, and that we could sort of, you know, start it together and, and put this company together under this ridiculously liberating, lucrative deal that he had. And if I'm not mistaken, the deal he had, which was unlike any other deal that I know of or has been done since, is he had, and you can disagree with if you want, I believe he had at least one guarantee that at least one of his shows would be guaranteed to get on the air every year. My friend, it's three. Three? Yeah. It is. It, the network doesn't even put on three shows. A no, year. exactly, and they're paid in penalties if if they don't have room for them. But uh, that's yes. called pay or play, by yes, the way. Yes, exactly. So it's it, it's uh, three put shows a year and two put movies a year, I believe, unless the deal has changed. So it's just a ridiculously um, free handed thing. That was a lot of of you know answering your question. A lot of what was it was as close to you know, carte blanche as one can get. And my position there was basically, uh, you know, I was the only person doing movies and TV at, at will and floating between them. And, um, you know, it felt like an opportunity to start a company as opposed to, and the Apatow experience was so valuable. I mean, talk about a, a guy who gave me a chance when I had never produced a movie at the point that uh, I started running that company. I mean, that's that's Judd. That's what know. I'm saying. Yeah. Every every place you go, this is what's amazing about you. People just say, you know what, I, I, come on in here and do something that you've never done before. And I know you're going <laughs> to succeed. It's uh, I mean, it's a, a credit to, to Judd, frankly. I mean, he could have, you know, chosen anyone. I, anyone I'm sure it has be. nothing to do with you at all. In no, your track I, record. I'm, it is something. But, uh, you know, I'm I'm glad to have aligned with creative people who are willing to take leaps. I mean, and, I mean and, you align if it is any lesson learned here is like, listen, if you have a chance as a server to work at a diner on 57th and Broadway where the average meal is $10 or work at the Ritz-Carlton where the average meal is $57. Right. And you're doing the same gig, work at the Ritz-Carlton. Yes. Yeah, that is, and that is something. And so that. how, you know, with that structure of the Chernin deal, Kevin Riley and the powers that be at Fox, I mean, it seems like you would be handcuffed. You got a whole development team and... 
how many slots are there a year and all your slots have been given to the churning company it's yeah it's a it's an outsized deal i mean he you know this is i think he was uh at news corporation for 18 years or something you know he steadily sort of earned this so was sandy grushaw but he didn't have a deal like that (laughs) that's true peter's a, a very smart guy uh very well deserved so um so that was yeah that was fun i mean uh, to me at that point in in my uh trajectory i really was exciting about excited about starting my own thing knowing it would be rinky dink and scrappy compared to anything like the the churn in arrangement you know it was it was like uh you know launching a a dinghy off the off the Queen Mary or something. But uh, and what did you work on that got on the air with uh, Peter in the first? With Peter, uh, I was only there about a year and a half, and I worked on uh, a little bit on New Girl in the early days, but that really wasn't my my project. Um, I uh, speaking of the Chappelle Show, which you brought up, I worked with Neil Brennan, uh, who had who's you know, done the podcast. Yeah. And, uh, Oh, has he? And he was the doorman at my comedy club. Oh, that's hilarious. That's where he met Dave, and uh, that's how Half-Baked got together. That is really funny. I didn't know that. Uh, Neil's a great guy. We worked on a show together uh, that that unfortunately didn't get on the air. I worked on a bunch of movies that... uh, Ended up not going forward. One with my friend Russell Brand, uh, one with a guy named Jason Manzukis, very talented comedian. Um, but I actually was uh, only there for about a year before Fox asked me to uh, be a producer on my own. So I that's when I started Invention, which I had been excited to to do. Cool. Um, it's a great name for a company. And to me, when I heard the name of the company for the first time, I'm like, I can't believe it's like 2013, 14, and no one has trademarked the name Invention. I know. Isn't that something? It was my wife's idea, and I thought, oh, that's definitely going to be taken. Um, Is she Swedish? (laughs) She's a hot Swedish Ghanaian, actually. She really Uh, is? Yeah, I finally found one. I can't believe it. Yeah, Swedish Ghanaian. Ghanaian (laughs) Swedish, really. she uh she's a hot british it all comes for a full circle yes it really does um Uh, so this new company and you know working with all these groups of people you're doing people believing in you and before we get into the final questions i think it's important because you're working now with mort marcus and sure bernstein yeah yep and it's an interesting model which we haven't really talked about on the podcast sure and so even though uh, i am familiar with it i think it's better coming from you what the 1090 model is and and this these are for shows like um the shows that you would know uh that are, are more famous in this model you might not realize they are are the tyler perry shows that are on tbs or the Charlie yeah. Sheen show, Anger Management, so yeah. uh, is one of those as well. And and although I'm going to have Nikki explain it, the whole concept, really, the simplistic version, but he's going to be more detailed, is the fact that instead of doing this whole situation, the traditional thing with just shooting a pilot and 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 betting on it like you're on a first date, and you're gonna are we going to get married for seven years? It gives you ten dates. Mm-hmm. So why don't you explain a little sure. bit about? It? The beauty of it is, and as uh, Kevin Beggs, who's the chairman of, of Lionsgate TV, and John Feltheimer, who runs Lionsgate, uh, as they explained it to me, they kind of had me as soon as they said, you skip the pilot process. 
that to me is, and I had in my, uh, to go back for a second to when I was leaving uh, 20th Century Fox TV, I had proposed uh, two things about the television development development process to my uh, bosses, neither of which was was uh, uh, accepted, maybe rightly so. One was that we use our overall deals um, as sort of a uh, a justice league where we would seek the counsel of the writers and showrunners that we had under overall deals whenever we were developing something at Broken Pilot or something. These are writers. Why don't we go to them rather than sitting around the conference room with a bunch of executives guessing at how to fix stuff? That was immediately rejected. And then uh, the other thing that was rejected was this idea of not doing pilots, but of right, paying people to do three episodes of things we believe in so that you actually get into the show and whatever. So I've been a long time fan of the idea of, of skipping the pilot process. What this is basically, and it's, I don't have to go into too much boring detail, but basically instead of doing a pilot, you front load talent. You basically cast the major parts with exciting actors from the beginning. You go out to a network, you find a network that's willing to partner with you on it. And instead of doing a pilot, you write, cast, shoot, edit 10 episodes from the beginning. Uh, you put those episodes on the air in on that network in partnership with that network. And if it gets a certain ratings threshold, it triggers a 90 episode order. So you basically have four seasons worth of television Instantly, it's like instant syndication. So in order to do that, they need, they being the network, needs to have faith that this is a big, exciting show that they're willing to, you know, sign up for long term. So that's why you need the actors on board. You need a great showrunner who can handle it. The shows are done two a week. So it's a hyper factory of this stuff. Um, I do that with Mr. Box Office, a uh, show I executive oh, produced with okay. Bill Bellamy and uh, John yeah, yeah, Lovitz yeah, yeah. and Tim Meadows and Vivica you Fox. Did two a week? Not... We started doing two a week. Now we're down to we do the table read on Monday for half of the day and we shoot on one day. Oh and and, uh, and we, but it's a crazy situation. It's wild. Yeah. Yeah. So it's that. I mean, the which is a challenge, but it's also quite liberating because it means you're getting almost no notes at that point. You're really just running your show. There's no table reads with the studio and network. There's no network walkthroughs. It's just cranking your stuff out and working with the actors, which a lot of people get very excited by. It's a much more streamlined way of doing this stuff. Cool. So uh, then now I'd like to just do, uh, before we wrap up, I'd like to do a word association with you. I'm going to mention a project or a person sure. and just any sentence or anything that comes to mind that, uh, you know, whatever. Sure. It sounds dangerous. I like it. Will Ferrell. Warm gentleman, believe it or not. One of the uh, most fun parts of my, uh, my experiences was uh, on Step Brothers, just the most boring conference calls we would set up with, uh, with Amy Pascal or whoever it was. Amy Pascal was the president and is the president of Sony. Yes, and we would have some notes thing or a talk about a screening or something. The most fun were the minute and a half before the president or whoever got on the conference call, <laughs> and Will and Adam McKay 
just bantering, you know, giving each other nicknames, arguing about fake points about the movie. <laughs> uh, there was a whole podcast in those conference calls. Uh, he's wonderful. Awesome. Gail Berman. Uh, I versatile would be my adjective uh she is uh, a dear friend and a very uh talk about an evolving person um she is really continuously finding uh interesting things to do russell brand i will say the adjective that one might not expect uh intelligent just a fiercely smart his wheels turn a mile a minute guy Kristen wig sensitive i would say she really is a real actor she is not a goofball she's not looking to do bridesmaids too and you know milk her success she makes really interesting sensitive smart choices on everything she does james franco ah <laughs> uh, chameleon he is uh he is living the dream if i were still 12 years old living in New York City and heard that you could do what he's doing out here, which is simultaneously sort of making fun of the system while uh, thriving in the system. I would think this is the most fun city on earth. The Lonely Island guys. <laughs> uh, they are wonderful. Somebody said that uh, I was listening here at the Montreal Comedy Festival to a stand-up last night who said that the friends you make when you're a kid uh, guarantee that every time you see them for the rest of your life, you will act the age you were at when you met them. <laughs> and uh, they're an example of that. They really are timeless. They are nine-year-olds together at the same time that they're incredibly sophisticated actor, director, writers. Rupert Murdoch. Same thing. Just a crazy comedian. Uh, really just uh, <laughs> much like James Franco. Uh, no, Rupert, I, I will say, was uh, we obviously had our bizarre buddy comedy uh relationship um he was just he was like graduate school for me it's just fascinating it's judd apatow judd i would say the the thing i always think with him apart from the education i got under under his tutelage um if he has a a genius among all the smart things he does uh it's talent recognition he really is just a a a like a metal detector. I mean, he really could point out people who have a spark of genius from a mile away. I will never be able to imitate that. Peter Chern. Um, You know, just an evolving, interesting guy who is uh, manages to question things. It's a little like your uh, fuck Keenan story. Um, he really manages to be both irreverent and funny and questioning at the same time that he actually runs these companies. It's kind of a rare trick. Awesome. Um, your biggest disappointment in show business. Wow. My biggest disappointment. Um, I would say I, this is just coming to mind in the spirit of free association. Uh, I had a radical idea. Uh, we were, was working on a radical movie at Apatow, and this was probably 
ill-advised. Um, but I was working with Kim Pierce, uh, the writer director of Boys Don't Cry and these things to do um, a uh, sort of lesbian coming of age story in the super bad model. Um, just a dirty, funny movie. And it felt really brave to me. It was probably ahead of its time um, or it was just insane. Uh, in any case, it, it sort of went nowhere. And I feel like one of these days it'll, it'll be something interesting. Your proudest moment professionally. My proudest moment. Um, I was really proud of Bridesmaids. That might be, it really felt like a renegade thing. And now when I talk to people who say, you know, female directors or writers or male directors or writers who say that, that opened something for me. I never would have, I never would have written this spec script or I never would have given this to my agent or whatever if that hadn't happened. Um, it's more, more Kristen and Annie than me, but makes me feel happy. Cool. Last question. What advice do you have for the young writer, the young artist, the young comedian, the young actor who's just has the dollar and a dream and just living in that lower East side apartment and, mm. uh, just having a really tough time figuring out how to get to the next level. And also to the young executive who's trying to navigate through the situation where there's people in the office who he knows are trying to, or she knows trying to cut their legs off. What advice do you have to them to get to the next level and get to be to the stage where you are today? I would say, you know, I felt a real, it took me a while to learn this, I felt a real pressure um, to follow whatever rules were laid out in each particular world that I've bounced around in. Because when you land there, you're greeted by the rules. And it doesn't matter if you're a, at a production company or you're a playwright on the Lower East Side or whatever, you, you're very aware of am I ticking the boxes? There's a myth out there that if you tick the boxes, you will get ahead. If you f answer these notes, your show will get on the air. Whatever it is, I guess what I've learned is um, there really are no rules, uh, much more so than is advertised, that the biggest shows that become hits are shows despite the fact that they go against conventions. Uh, you know, the best writers out there wrote the thing that their agent never would advise um, and somehow got it. And, I, and it's very true in the executive world. Uh, I really think there's a very polite way. You know, the dumb way is to say, fuck the rules. I'm not listening to any of you people and shout people down. That's a really stupid way to go about it. There's a smart way to go about it where you are polite, you are a gentle person about it, and you find an adult way to get along with people, be respectful of people, and really listen to your own rules more than you listen to them, and really try some radical shit every time you can. And you'd be surprised. That is, ironically, the most sensible, rational way to go. 
This has been amazing. Nikki Weinstock, you are no Forrest Gump. <laughs> I aspire to be Sally Struthers. Though. All right. Well, thank you so much. I hope you had a great time. First podcast time. have you done? First podcast ever. All right. It means I'm excited a lot. that it's yours. It means a lot to me. Well, thank you. And as always, it's another episode of Industry Standard. And if you like the show, please tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. They say it's the glory I'll scream your name Put you on shoulders Walk you to fame You'll get all the money Drive that fancy car All the people love you Cause you're going for Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over Till it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley A fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast. Leave a comment and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.